Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us how Moses was like unto the Lord Jesus Christ from the book of Exodus. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Hello, I'd like to welcome you today for a continuation in our study in this great book of Exodus. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we come to you and acknowledge that you are the one, as you said, created the eyes. That's what you told Moses. You talked about who created the mouth. We know you created the mouth and the eyes and all of us. And so, Lord, with our spiritual eyes inside, we pray that you would open them, that we might see the Lord Jesus Christ, and live for having seen him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, please follow along as I read in Exodus chapter 1, and I'll begin in verse 15. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shifra, and the name of the other Puah. And he said, When ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them, Why have ye done this thing and have saved the men children alive? And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. And it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that he made them houses. And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Now please follow along as we continue in chapter 2. And there went a man of the house of Levi, and took to wife a daughter of Levi, And the woman conceived and bare a son, and when she saw him that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. And when she could no longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch, and put the child therein, and she laid it in the flags by the river's bank. Now, in our lesson that we saw already, we have studied these two very remarkable women because they're so remarkable because they take their stand for God in a very, very difficult situation where their very lives were at risk. And these women are so notable to God that he records for us their names that we have here, Shua and Pithra. They were examples to us of those who did what it says in 1 Samuel 2.30, Them that honor me, I will honor. And when we look at these two women, we have before us a graphic illustration. There's no question at all as we look at what they did that these were women who honored God. And what we're going to find is that these were women whom therefore God honored. So we saw from verse 17 and verse 21 that there was this one overriding reason above anything else. Why did the midwives not kill the male babies? And that reason, which is crystal clear for us and given to us in these verses is the midwives 
feared God, period. That was the reason, that was the overriding reason, that what was in front of their minds, that was what was in, in their sight as they did what they did, even though they were intimidated, or let me put it this way, Pharaoh sought to intimidate them with all of his grandeur and his authority. Nevertheless, they had a greater reason inside of them for not obeying Pharaoh, and it's so clearly stated when they say the midwives feared God. Now, the way verse 17 explains it, it's so good. So let's look at Exodus 1.17. It says, but the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men's children alive. You see how that reads? It's so instructive for us. It says, the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them. That verse, what's so important about that verse, what it says, if they feared God and they didn't do what the king of Egypt commanded them, but what's important to see in that verse is what it does not say. What it does not say is that the midwives feared retaliation from the Jewish mothers that they were going to kill the babies of. doesn't say that. It doesn't say the midwives loved babies so much. It clearly states that the midwives were afraid of what God would do to them more than they were afraid of what Pharaoh would do to them if they killed those babies. It's just wonderful in this instance here how the Bible tells us so clearly not just that they did not do what the king of Egypt had commanded them, but it goes on to tell us why it says so clearly they did it because they, they, they feared God. So what do we have here in these midwives? We have for the, in these people a grand encouragement for us. It's very encouraging when we look at these midwives because we find ourselves in our lives in exactly the same position that they were in. They were being asked to do something that would displease God. And that wasn't what was in front of their eyes as they thought about it. That will not make God happy. That will make God angry. That is not If I do that, if I respect God at all, if I have him at all in reverence, if the Lord is my God at all, I cannot do that. I must not do that. That's what's going through their minds. Now, you know, I'll give you an example. This happened to me about 30 years ago. And I was actually studying this very verse, 30 years, and it helped me so much. Let me tell you what happened. I had been working on a contract for a product that we had manufactured for a company in Japan. And I, we had been working on that product for about nine months. And three days before I was scheduled to leave for Japan to go and sit down with them and, and sign the contract, make the deal so that we could supply this, this manufactured product to them, I received a 10-page fax. That's what we did in those days. We'd have email, we had fax. So I received a 10-page fax from the company in Japan. And the company said in the fax that everything was set for them to sign the contract, but the company needed certain what's called real-time stability data. They needed real-time stability studies, which had been completed. They needed the data 
on our product in order for it to pass the Japanese government regulation. Well, real-time stability data means that you have to go through the real time in order to generate the data. It's not something of a quick experiment. You have to be able to take the real time and demonstrate that the product performs the same today as it does X number of months or years in the future so that, you can, so that the company can make a claim as to the stability of the product they were going to resell in Japan. And so what happened was the company in this 10-page fax had sent to me a description of the stability studies and the results from the stability study. There was data there. And the company asked that we retype up the description and the results on our letterhead, sign it, and that they would submit it to the Japanese government. And then the company said that in compensation that they would give us, when I came, $125,000. Now, there was, that was great. There was just only one problem. We did not do those studies. We did not generate those results. And that was very disturbing. So I called up the company on the phone, and I told them that they just had the wrong person, and I would not do it. Then I was troubled about it, and I read this verse about the midwives not killing the babies as Pharaoh had commanded them to do because they feared God. And that so much impressed me, verse 17, as I was in that situation so troubled. That was a lot of money for us, $125,000, especially at that time. It was, oh, it was a lot of money, and we needed that money. And so, but I sat down and I read this verse, but the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men, children, alive. And after I read that verse, all of a sudden became so crystallized. The reason I could not do it was the same as those midwives, fear of God. I thought about how verse 17 says that the midwives did not do what they were told to do for no other reason they did it because they feared God. And so about two hours after reading this verse, I, I, I called back the company in Japan and I told them and I explained to them, I said, look, the reason I can't do that, I cannot send this falsified data is because I was a Christian and I was afraid of what God would do to me. It wasn't a question about uh, could we get away with it from the government's point of view or whatever. It was really a fear that knowing that I could not get away with this and didn't want to get away with it from what God would see. Now, we've seen in this passage here how God was also watching, and I felt that too at that time. I felt like God had me right in his sight in this situation with this, this data, and, I, and in the same way, God had the midwives right in his sight, and he was watching over them, and in verse 21, it says that God responded to their fear of God put into action by not doing what Pharaoh had commanded, and he made them houses. God built them houses. Why? Because those midwives gave themselves for the building up of the families of Israel. God was building up the families of Israel in Egypt in spite of the fact that they were under a terrible pressure. God was still at work building up the families in Israel. And so because these midwives 
also worked to build up the families of Israel by not killing the male children. God built up the families of these midwives. You see, it was in kind. Now, this shows us something very important. Whenever we look after God's interests, then God looks after our interests in the same area. You know, that's what the Lord showed me at Scanabody's laboratory business. I used to put the business first and God's business second. Now, I wouldn't have said that, but that was the truth, and that was the reality. And looking back on history, that's what I honestly have to say. As I look back, I said, yeah, I put business first. I put Scanabody's business first, my business first, God's business second. I always said, well, you know, if we make a lot of money, then I'll have a lot of money, and I'll, I'll give some of the excess money to God. See, me, me first, business first, God second. That's just the way it was. And that was the way it was until the year 2007, and in 2007 was a tremendous change of it all. And that was because in 2001, I had uncovered that a parathyroid hormone or PTH test that was produced by a subsidiary that was our competitor called Nichols Diagnostic, but the parent company was Quest Diagnostics Laboratory. And I had discovered that that test was inaccurate and was being used to misguide therapy on as many as a half a million dialysis patients because the test was not giving the correct results. And so therefore, the test was inaccurate and it was being used to guide therapy. So it was potentially misguiding therapy on a lot of dialysis patients. And that misguided, let me just say, that inaccurate test that led to the, could potentially lead to the misguided therapy could potentially lead to a dangerous overdoses of vitamin D analogs. Vitamin D analogs, I'm not talking about, you know, you eat your bread and drink your milk because it's vitamin D fortified, fortified. I'm talking about some very, very potent vitamin D analogs. And just if you think that vitamin D is just so innocuous and harmless, just go to Home Depot and pull off of the shelf the rat poisons. And on many of them, you'll see that it just contains vitamin D because vitamin D causes a lot of internal problems. So I started, because this inaccurate test was potentially causing the misguided therapy, potentially leading to very dangerous overdoses of vitamin D analogs because it was giving overestimation values. So I started this international campaign to warn doctors who were responsible for dialysis patients or nephrologists to try to protect the patients. Well, Quest Diagnostics didn't exactly sit back. They didn't exactly appreciate somebody up there saying that, you know, potentially killing patients and ruining their lives. So what they did is they bought a patent, which they used in 2002 to sue Scanabody's Laboratory, to sue my company, in federal court in San Diego. Now, let me just kind of put this all in perspective. At that time we were sued, we'd been in business for about 25 years. The amount of money that we had collected after 25 years of being in business was a million dollars. So we had a million dollars in the bank, and now we're being sued by a $6 billion Quest Diagnostics. And the, we meet together with our attorneys and ask them, and how much is this going to cost us to defend ourselves? They say it's going to cost about 
two to three million dollars. We had no idea that at the end it was going to really cost us eight million dollars just in legal expenses to defend ourselves. So now we have a lawsuit and we're looking at having to pay, we didn't know at the time, but it worked out to be eight million dollars in legal expenses just to defend ourselves. We were in the middle of making our first investment in our large manufacturing site in Tecate, Mexico, and that was eight million dollars. Our plan, because we only had a million dollars, was to go to the bank and to borrow $7 million for our first investment in Takati. Well, after we got sued by this $6 billion company, and it was going to end up, uh, it was going to be millions of dollars, and as I told you, it was $8 million for legal expenses, the bank was just not so excited about loaning us money because they don't like to loan for legal expenses. So now this is a real, real problem. I, I hope I've painted for you the kind of picture of just how scary that was for me. Only a million dollars in the bank? having been sued for the first time in federal court for a patent infringement by a $6 billion company that was causing us to spend $8 million in legal fees that we didn't have, and our law firm having quoted us 2 to $3 million, we didn't have exactly the best relationship with our own law firm, and there were times when they threatened us to leave us high and dry if we did not agree continually to pay them more and more until it finally added up to $8 million. So, and also, we needed $8 million to pay for the first phase for the construction of Takati. And now, the bank is not interested in loaning us any money. And that was the beginning we were sued in January of 2002. That was the beginning of a five-year legal fight. A terrible time. Uh, you know, to spend $8 million in legal fees means that you're really involved. And we were, ha we were doing mock jury trials with, with uh, double mirror, with, with see-through mirrors and, and uh, paid uh, jury, uh, mock jury members and so forth, and depositions in the U.S., depositions in Germany, oh, sending people to, to different countries. It was very, very complicated. And let me just kind of put it this way. For five years, we were were ignoring the business. We were concentrating on staying alive, on defending ourselves in a very, very complicated patent infringement case. And to have to deal with a federal judge who was responsible to us, that was also, to put it mildly, a trial in and of itself, just having to work with the federal judge. Just to give you an idea, we won the jury trial we, the jury voted in our favor, but the judge had a different idea. And so after we won the jury trial, that he then called us back into his court three months later and overrode the jury and declared us guilty, something that only happens 1% of the time in what's called a runaway jury. So that forced us then to go to the appeals court, which in this case is in Washington, D.C., called the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals. And finally, that three-judge member appeal court overturned uh, the judge, and we finally won. Well, I could tell you that during the whole time that I took it in absolute perfect peace, that's why I put on 100 pounds of weight and ended up with a coronary stent. Apart from that, I was perfectly peaceful. It was far from that. To say it was scary was an understatement, because 
It was scary. It was a very, very difficult time. But I want to tell you what happened. After those five years, when all the dust settled, and I saw that during those five years of not minding the shop and all of us in management being wrapped up in trying to defend ourselves, I noticed, saw, well, we didn't have to notice, it was obvious, we never ran out of money. That it was kind of like man in the wilderness. The Lord Jesus Christ just rained profits on us in this area and that area. And at the end of the day, five years, you could look back on it and say, you know what? We just got $15 million in excess profits through the business, and we never went to the bank. That was a miracle. 25 years in business, $1 million to show for ourselves, knocking ourselves out, knocking myself out in business, having a $1 million to show. And then after five years of not minding the shop, got $15 million in excess profits. What was that? Well, there was only one thing to say. And I looked to God and I said these words, you took care of the business. And I started thinking about that. More and more I thought, you took care of the business. It's just kind of like a, almost like a, kept rolling in my mind. God took care of the business. Took care, took care, took care, took care. And the more I said that, that's when the phrase came to me as if God said it himself. You take care of my business and I will take care of your business. And I said, deal, right away when I heard that. Right away when I understood that. I said, deal, Put it there, partner, God. I said, I got it. I heard from you. I understood from you. You take care of my business, and I will take care of your business. You take care of my business. I'll take care of your business. And since I did that and made that agreement with God in 2007, Scanabodies, which is my business, so to speak, has never had a debt, has never had a mortgage, has never had an investor, and I determined at that point to give myself to God's business, which is the same business as the Lord Jesus Christ spoke of when he summarized the business of God in Luke 2.49. He said, I must be about my father's business. Sorry, that's the verse that speaks about, we'll come to the summary in a minute. That's the verse that speaks about him giving himself to the father's business when he said, I must be about my father's business. If you looked at him and you said, what is the Lord Jesus Christ about? You would come to the conclusion he is about his father's business. God wants to look at us and when others see us and when he sees us and the question is, what is he or she about? The conclusion God wants is that he or she is about God the Father's business. And so now the summary, exactly what is that business? That's given to us in Luke 19.10, the famous mission statement verse of the Lord Jesus Christ, where he speaks of himself as the Son of Man. He speaks of himself of the purpose for which he came into the earth. And he makes this statement, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. You know, it's hard work to seek 
and to save that which was lost. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes focus. And God sees that. That time, that effort that we put in to doing the Father's business, that time, that effort we put in to seeking to save that which was lost is a limited time and effort. We don't have unlimited time. We don't have unlimited effort. We have limited time. We have limited effort. And that is the same limited time and limited effort that cannot be spent on my business, Scantabody's laboratory business, if it is to be spent on God's business. And God sees that. God sees that when we have spent our limited time and effort on God's business, then we don't have that time that we spent, we don't have it available to spend on our business. And God sees that when we have spent our money on God's business, then we don't have that money to buy something for ourselves. But God has unlimited time, and God has unlimited resources, and God makes a decision to spend his unlimited time and to spend his unlimited resources on those who are spending their limited time and resources on God's business. Thank you for joining us today. Now, would you like to get a copy of today's message? You can by going to friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. There you'll find many Tom Cantor and Israel Restoration Ministries resources available to you free online. Or if you'd like a printed or DVD copy or video copy of any of Tom Cantor's messages or materials, call us today, 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051. 